0: Hello and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about queer culture, politics, and surgeries you can do in a barn. I'm Christina Cotterucci, a senior writer at Slate.
1: And I'm Jules Gill peterson professor by day, surgeon by night. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Brian Lauder.
2: I am a surgeon of words, I guess. I edit, <laughs> I edit, I edit Outward.
0: So this month, as in, I feel like, many of our episodes, we kind of accidentally ended up with a theme. We are taking a look at two stories about queer healthcare, past and present. First, actually, the present, we are going to talk about monkeypox, the virus that's endemic to Central and West Africa and is now spreading basically everywhere else, mostly among queer men and trans women who have sex with men. Uh, We'll be joined by a sex educator and health advocate from the UK who's recovering from monkeypox uh, to talk about how gays are grappling with the stigma and the fear and the government fumbles that seem to recall the early days of the AIDS crisis and also contain echoes of the early days of the COVID pandemic in important and disturbing ways. Then, I'm really excited about this segment, we're going to chat with Io Dodds, who recently wrote a fascinating and just really sweet piece in The Independent about two trans women in the early 2000s who ran a clinic performing orchiectomies, that's testicle removal, out of a barn in Washington State. I'm so excited to have Io on to talk about that incredible history, but first... We have a thought and query for our Thoughts and Queries segment. A listener wrote in with this question. Um, I'm going to read it, and I am curious to hear what y'all have to say about it. Hopefully, we'll have June weigh in, too, because I think that she would be an important voice on this topic. So here's the query. I happen to be the son of an immigrant who remained a British citizen for a decade after I was born. It appears that I can apply for UK citizenship, and my husband could apply after I am a citizen. Should I pursue dual citizenship just in case the Supreme Court attacks gay rights? I'm mulling the pros and cons. The UK is very gay friendly. We could easily sell our house paid for for more than triple the average cost of a house in England outside of London oh my god
2: Goodness.
0: six months ago I would have never considered moving but the latest news is disconcerting beyond that a recent trip to Scandinavia proved to me that Europeans are much happier <laughs> than we Americans are it's been a bit depressing coming back to a country where everyone is angry at each other all the time all the time it seems extreme to consider moving out of the country. On the other hand, things could change quickly. Is dual citizenship worth pursuing as a, no pun intended, plan B? Any thoughts? Paranoid or prudent? What do you guys have to say?
1: Oof. I mean, I'm an immigrant to this United States from another one of the British Empire's inglorious relics, Canada. (laughs) You know, it's very complicated, right? It's like, I have no plans to move to the UK anytime soon. Don't seem like a very friendly place for trans people. And, you know, the the current political crisis going on there and the replacement of the Conservative Party leader has seemed to have led to this kind of pissing contest on the part of leadership candidates to prove who could be the most Mm -hmm. anti-LGBT possible. So, you know, honey, don't pack your bags. Just, yeah, (laughs) I have to say maybe because I'm like descended from immigrants um, and also am one myself, uh, you know, I see these kinds of I see tweets all the time, too, that are like time to make your exit plan. And I'm always like, oh, okay. well, y'all have never actually been an immigrant before because the rest of the world is not just like, oh, we love, you should come hang out here. It's incredibly impossible. <laughs> it's really expensive. Most people right. are disqualified from immigrating for lots of absurd, arbitrary, racist and ableist reasons. So I don't know, I wouldn't put all the, the eggs in that basket. Um, but But maybe more to the point, <sighs> june might have to weigh in on this too but it's like i grew up in a part of canada that has weather very similar to a lot of <laughs> england um and i just i don't know i mean
3: that's the best part won't the
1: won't the, giant, <laughs> you know, won't the public jails in america at least be under the blazing hot climate change <laughs> to sun? and so you know, know pick your poison yeah, yeah.
3: june what do you think so jules i Everything you said has been absolutely true. For some of us, the the freezing cold weather is actually a, a plus. It's that's bad. Yeah, <laughs> if you're
0: like a uh, sweater gay, like June, mm-hmm, yeah.
3: mm-hmm. you need the cold. Yeah. You know, optionality is the ultimate privilege. And when we say privilege, we often go a little, like, ooh, ooh. But, you know, if, if you got it, use it, especially, you know, if you're a marginalized person in, in one form or another. I do think, though, that the bar for uprooting yourself it's really high just because I think a lot of people cannot imagine, you know, what it means to, we're living in an age now where if you go somewhere, you can go back probably Mm -hmm. possibly Mm -hmm. certainly people with privilege can, you know, if you come in a boat, you have a lot less, a lot fewer options. You know, you will be saying goodbye to your friends, to your family, to, you know, all of the support systems that you have. Our, letter writer does indeed have an option of, of, of moving to Britain apparently. but it's still going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be a huge upheaval. It's going to be just more anxiety and stress than you think it will be. I'm not saying don't do it, I'm not saying it's a terrible idea, but just have a realistic um, sense of what's involved and kind of what your what your motivation is.
2: The only thing I would add to that, which is all, I think, wise and correct, is just that, you know, my my partner actually is, uh, is an anthropologist who does research, um, or he has done research, rather, on uh, people trying to get citizenship to Spain. Uh, there was a, a return law for people of Jewish descent uh, that was passed there a number of years ago. And just to say that the process for these things, even when you're, like, invited to come, and this, this the letter writer here is... Um, saying that there's like an option to pursue citizenship. I think e- even in cases where like the state wants you to come, it's like incredibly difficult and it just takes forever. And yeah, it's so expensive and all the things everyone has said. So, you know, maybe something to pursue while you go about your life and just see how long it actually takes. Um, but I would not count on it as like an escape plan. You know, indeed, my, my feeling about this question more broadly is like, we need to, especially folks with privilege, need to think about how we can Ally with our communities here and like resist and find ways of protecting each other in the face of state attacks uh, as much as possible. And so, um, I would think about it that way—not as an escape plan, but maybe it's just like an option to pursue, but but not a, not something to count on.
0: Yeah, my wife and I actually have had a disagreement about this because mm-hmm. I may be able to get Italian citizenship based on. I have to figure out exactly when my great-grandparents like naturalized. I mean, even in that moment before the 2020 election, when Amy Coney Barrett came on the court, it wasn't clear who was going to get elected. And honestly, for me, it's less like, will my marriage survive and more... Guns, like I don't want to get shot by like a militia, like, yeah, like an anti gay militia, like Christian nationalist mob. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like that's becoming more and more of a possibility. My wife more it says what you're saying, Brian, which is like, actually, we have a responsibility to stay here and be part of protecting people against what's going to come. And I kind of feel like, well, what are we really doing? Like, if we move to another country, mm. we could still send money. We could still do our jobs, which <laughs> like our jobs actually feel like the, the main way that we're sort of contributing to mm. whatever sort of like progressive resistance we can put up. People should do whatever feels right for them. I, like you, Jules, am not convinced that England is much more LGBT friendly than the U.S., but it certainly has fewer guns and you're less likely to be killed by somebody who is a homophobe or transphobe because there are fewer guns. So I would not judge this listener for whatever they decide. And you know what? If you have a passport that gets you through the customs line faster when you travel, like <laughs> that seems like a benefit worthy <laughs> enough if you have the money to pursue dual citizenship. Thank you so much to
1: this listener, though, very, very sincerely. It's, it's a yeah. sign of the times that these are questions and conversations that that we're all having in different degrees. And if you'd like to send us your feedback, your advice questions, maybe a voice memo or just an email, you can write to us at slate.com. All right, well, it is time, as per usual, for our PMPs, our prides and provocations. So why don't I throw it over to you, Brian, first?
2: Sure, so um, we recently at my house, I'm sorry to say, got Discovery Plus, uh, (laughs) yet another stupid streaming service that we don't need, but I thought we needed it because I wanted to watch Trixie Motel, which Mm. is uh, Trixie uh, Motel, the drag queen's uh, Palm Springs hotel renovation show. Also, sorry to say that is not very good, but <laughs> uh, it's really just really boring. But the other night, uh, we stumbled upon something that I think maybe made up for like the four ninety nine that this that this cost us. Um, it is a show called Conjuring Kesha, and it is my pride. and Let me tell you why. <laughs> so this is a show that is hosted indeed by Kesha, the pop superstar. Who apparently, during the pandemic, leaned really hard into the woo, uh, and I think had kind of a spooky podcast going already. Huh. Uh, but now on this show, she and her famous friends like uh, Big Freedia and Betty Who are bouncing around notorious spooky places looking for ghosts and demons in Bigfoot. It's kind of excellent. I was kind of shocked how, by how excellent it is. It has like the goth campy mm. blood of Dracula, which mm, is a, a mm. show that I've talked about on on the pod before injected into one of those really super boring straight paranormal investigation shows like on the <laughs> sci-fi channel that are kind of horrible. Kesha is serving looks, like multiple looks per episode. and she's actually this kind of great reality TV figure who's both like heavily medicated and totally committed to the bit like at the same time Aren't we all. <laughs> and like already in the first episode, she has like the classic sidebar with the producer where she's like, things are getting too real. I don't know if I'm gonna like stay. Oh my you God, know, like God. that like that that perfect thing. Okay, so normally this wouldn't have risen to the level of pride, but in the first episode uh, with the guest is the comedian and actor Whitney Cummings. There is a queer swerve that I was really not expecting. Okay, so they're in an abandoned prison, which is for proper reasons that we have discussed on the pod as well. But putting that aside, Whitney is in this room trying to talk to a presence that the guest expert who is a demonologist, like super sketchy dude, <laughs> that says, of course, is a demon... <laughs> Nice. But using the equipment where you can like ask questions of, of the, the presence and sort of there, oh, various, right,
3: that equipment, <laughs> there's
2: various technologies, right. That, that are special <laughs> to this Whitney. And I think this she quite seriously determines that she thinks that she is talking to a trans ghost. wow Now I don't want to like spoil this because the way she does this is, is kind of interesting. And, and, and I know like out of context, it maybe sounds iffy or even offensive. And I, you know, if people disagree with me about this, please let me know. My experience was that she and the show took this really seriously and that she was not making a joke about it. Uh, And I looked her up. She's apparently pretty well known for being a really outspoken ally, actually, uh, of queer people and trans people. So there's more evidence to to this case. But she she has like a conversation in a way like with this presence and is very moved by it and and really is convinced that it's a trans ghost. And in the midst of this otherwise kind of crazy campy thing, it's this really kind of uh, earnest moment. And so I'm curious for other people to watch it. Uh, I was sort of shocked and then very moved by it. And it was a type of queer inclusion that I have (laughs) never seen before. Like didn't- We need
0: ghost representation. Ghost representation. Like
2: didn't know what to expect, didn't know that I wanted it in my life, but like here, (laughs) here it is. Um, and so I'm going to give it, yeah, a tentative pride, uh, Conjuring Kasha on Discovery Plus. <laughs> Check oh my it god, out. Oh god, I'm Interesting. obsessed. Yeah. Color
0: me extremely skeptical, but yeah, I yeah. will give it a watch.
2: <laughs> I understand, but you will, your skepticism will float out the window with, with the ghost. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Christina, what do you have?
0: So I hope this is kosher. I'm actually doing a self-pride. I'm proud <laughs> yeah. of something that I did last month. So my niece is in kindergarten. She's a Daisy Girl Scout. She's one of the lights of my life. And last month in her Girl Scout troop, one of the options for these little patches you can earn was a Pride patch. Ooh. So, um my sister asked me as sort of the leading homosexual in my niece's life if I would want to do these activities with her. There's like a whole list you can you have to pick 3 to earn the patch. So of course I said yes. And then we decided to open it up to the rest of her troop in case there were other, honestly, the vibe was a little bit like, maybe if there's like straight parents who kind of want someone else to explain all this gay stuff to their kids, Aww. like find them all to the Zoom and I'll do it for them. Um, and then they get to earn this little patch. You know, I'm not sure whether the kids have other queers in their lives. I'm sure some of them do, but um, based on what my sister said, I think a lot of them like probably don't, and like maybe had hadn't like had a queer role model in their lives. Anyway, I'm not ashamed to say that I killed the assignment, and yes. I made a whole PowerPoint where we had one slide for every letter of the acronym with a photo of a famous person that embodied that identity, um, and we talked about what it meant. I also made sure they knew what straight meant because uh, Mm. straight and cis Mm. people also have identities.
3: Exactly. I was like, can
0: you guys think of anybody you know who's straight, where it's like a woman falls in love with a man? And they were like, mom and dad? And I was like, yes, yeah. Not yeah. grooming. I mean, technically, uh. one of them could be bi. I don't know. But like, yeah, they're, you know, it's right. straight. Yeah. Kids like,
1: ask your parents if they're bi tonight. Really yes. <laughs> <laughs> important.
0: Right. Um, I That's also safe. read them a book based on a true story about gay penguins at the Central Park Zoo oh, who, oh, yeah. like, um,
2: Tango Mix Tango 3. three
0: yeah. yeah. And they, like, I oh my god, on a little rock because they thought it was an egg and then it didn't hatch, but then they got a real egg and they became great mm. dads. Anyway, um, I also had them look at the art of key pairing, which is actually like really accessible for children. Um, and I had them draw a little forgery of some of his artwork, and we talked about um what a great artist he was and how much he cared about his community. And it was just Honestly, it worked my brain a lot to be like, how do I explain pride and the need for pride to Mm. kids without sort of reinforcing that like, we're like different and, and like weird or like we were discriminated against and still are, but we shouldn't be. So I was just kind of like, we're different in a good way, like differences are amazing. And like most people are straight Mm -hmm. and we're queer and trans. And so this is our month where we get to have a parade and dance and like have an amazing time. And it's super fun. The kids were so sweet. I had the best time. I think it was a great idea on my sister's part to do this. And I'm hoping even though the kids were super young um, and I'm not sure how much they really grasped, I feel like it could be the kind of thing where it just like opens the door such that When they or their parents encounter LGBTQ stuff out in the world, they can be like, oh, yeah, remember that lady who Mm. did that presentation? It was like what she was talking about. (laughs) One very convenient truth is that the kids' favorite movie right now, most of them is Encanto, and the lead character is voiced by Stephanie Beatriz, a real-life bisexual so I was like, "Who here loves and Concho?" And they're like, "Me!" I was like, "Yeah." Well, first of all, do you know that cartoons have real people doing the voices behind them? I feel like I introduced them to a lot of new concepts, but um, yeah, I just hope that it it made them feel a little bit like, "Oh yeah, I kind of understand now why I'm seeing all this rainbow stuff around." And um,
3: mm-hmm.
0: it was really fun. Jules, what about you? How are you feeling this month? I am feeling proud.
1: Um, We're
0: all
1: which, proud. You know, we are. Yeah, a, a little belated, yeah. I much, until yeah. July. <laughs> But you know, better late than never. So I am proud, in a funny way. um I this is kind of vicarious on multiple levels. So I'm proud of Umbrella Academy star and just some regular Hawkeye Elliot Page, <laughs> and I'm proud of him for truly breaking Jordan Peterson without even having to lift a finger or do a damn thing, which. Aside, seems like Jordan <laughs> Peterson is pretty breakable these yeah. days. But you know, if you don't if you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, he is you know this ostensible or once a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. I'm ashamed to share the country of Canada with him. Who kind of made a name for himself on the far right, peddling totally nonsense, really bad anti intellectual uh, kind of work uh, that you know, among other things, telling men to clean their rooms you know, Peterson also kind of made a name for himself by just straight up making up untrue things about certain human rights legislation in Canada and pretending that, you know, there was going to be some, you know, gender pronoun police. And it's just a rapidly anti-trans person, you know, who also like, you know, promotes an all-beef diet and other kind of fun things. There are plenty of other podcasts you can go to listen about Jordan Peterson in greater detail. Um, But, you know, he's among this sort of crew of right-wing drifters and pundits who have really tried to make something uh, of the post-banning of Donald Trump on Twitter and, you know, maybe this moment when Elon Musk was going to try and buy Twitter. Anyways, like many other right-wing ideologues, Peterson tweeted very intentionally and egregiously trying to deadname Elliot Page and, you know, just make up totally bonkers ideas about what it means to be trans and then was surprisingly because it occasionally happens one out of a million times was suspended uh, by Twitter. Okay, whatever. And then, you know, proceeded to double down on that in the most hilarious hysterical way possible, claiming that, you know, he would rather die than take that tweet back but then did because he's back on Twitter and also has taken to posting these very bizarre, like direct to the camera videos where he's like sitting in a weird suit and just like absolutely mm-hmm. ranting in very disturbing and kind of like fascistic sort of, you know, tones about various topics, including, you know, often including trans people. It's really bizarre. You know, Jordan Peterson is in his flop era, you know, according to many, when and during any interview, he will just absolutely start, bawling his eyes out at the, you know, the drop of a pin. And I just want to say, I'm so proud of Elliot Page. You had to do nothing, never interacted with this guy, said not a thing, right? And has successfully brought about the self-destruction of this absolute joke of, of a public figure. So, Proud of you, Elliot. Thank you for this little gift. That
0: is just like raw trans power, like just by existing.
1: I'm telling you, like uh, a a little time at the gym, a little testosterone, some top surgery later, and we are bringing down uh, some of the titans of the far right. I mean, like, hello, any more proof that trans people are the best? Couldn't think of any.
2: All right, so if we needed any more evidence that we were living in the worst possible timeline, Today, we get the pleasure of talking about monkeypox. By now, you've almost certainly heard that there is another virus on top of COVID that we have to worry about, and it's currently spreading predominantly in our community among men who have sex with men and trans folks who have sex with men, though it almost certainly won't stay that way. Now, this isn't a medical show, uh, and so we're not going to get too much into the details of the virus. We are going to link to some coverage and public health guidance on our show page if you want more of that info. But just so everybody has the basics, monkeypox is not technically an STI, but it does spread easily through close contact, like sex, uh, and it causes flu-like symptoms and painful lesions in those who are infected. There's no specific treatment for it, uh, aside from a really long three to four-week isolation period, but there are antivirals that seem to be helping speed along recovery in some cases. The current outbreak seems to have emerged mid-spring from certain gatherings in Europe. This is according to CDC surveillance. And it's now growing rapidly across sort of everywhere else, but especially in the U.S. uh, in urban and and gayer states like New York, California, and Florida. The good news here is that there is a vaccine uh, that can help prevent infection and limit the severity even after a suspected exposure. But the rollout of that vaccine in the U.S. has been pretty much a disaster so far. Doctors are having to Google what monkeypox even is, and public health departments are being overwhelmed with requests compared to the limited amount of doses uh, that the federal government has been very slow to release so far. Thankfully, mid-July, which is when we're recording, it seems like that snappy was finally starting to get worked out a little bit. But just as an example, the week we're recording now in New York City, where I live, a tranche of, I think, 1,250 appointments was released at a very much promoted time on t- this past Tuesday, only for the website, which was hardly designed to completely crash. Oh and so no one could get in any of the appointments, people were on for like two hours, clicking, clicking, refreshing, 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 like getting into the code of the page to figure <laughs> out what was going on. And, you know, it was a disaster, horrible. The situation, of course, uh, raised a whole mess of questions about our crumbling public health system here in the US and equitable access to resources. This appointment time was in the middle of the day. It's like, do you have the time to, to click for two hours, right? Like all kinds of questions about that. And unsurprisingly, many gay and bi men are drawing troubling comparisons to the early days of the AIDS crisis uh, from this experience as well. Okay, so that's a lot to talk about. To help us with that, we wanted to hear from someone who has been outspoken about his own personal experience with monkeypox and who, because of his work in HIV advocacy, has thought about some of the larger issues connected to this outbreak. Haroon Tulane lives in London and has been speaking to the press and tweeting through his recovery process. Harun, welcome to Outward. We are so excited for you to join us.
4: Oh, Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for having me over. It's my pleasure.
2: So first, I just wanted to say that we were all so happy to see on Twitter that your recovery and your isolation is complete. Um, I saw that the first thing you did uh, was get a nice coffee, as any (laughs) self-respecting gay person would do. Uh, How how does it feel to be well and, and back out in the world?
4: After very scary, I think the most scariest June of my life, uh it was really really good to be out again and, and I'm talking as someone who saw so many lockdowns in the UK you know yeah. during the COVID and everything. but um, this one was a little bit scary. So yesterday was obviously a celebratory uh, skinny iced latte from the nearest coffee shop um, <laughs> and then um, going to my GP uh, general practitioner for my uh, blood tests. That's how I celebrated <laughs> mm-hmm. early in the morning.
2: So backing up a bit, we would love, if you don't mind, for you to share some of what this illness was like for you. I, you know, only as much as you're comfortable going into is obviously your private medical experience. But I know you believe that it's important for people to sort of know what this is like. So uh, tell us tell us what it was like.
4: Yeah, of course. Well, at this point uh, of, of, of my monkeypox journey, I think it's a little bit late not to talk yeah. about my journey. Because <laughs> um, I chose to be um, uh, public uh, with it because, you know, I realized that there weren't any lived experiences. And as someone, like you mentioned, working in the HIV sector, I know how important it is to see it or to hear it from someone who has it or who had it. Uh, And, you know, the doctors or clinicians or, you know, the experts always tells you the facts, you know, in line with whatever the data, uh, proven data they have. But when you live, when you have the experience, it's completely different stories. Because my journey has been really, really uh, painful, I say. Um, So I wanted to put it out there, uh, not to scare people, but just to show that this may happen to some people. And... It started, I think, th- exactly a month ago, and after um, um, I, I started to have um, really high fever at home, uh-huh. uh, and um, I started to have uh, chills and shiver. And you know, my friends actually told me that there was a heat wave in the UK back then on the second week of June. That I, not that I was aware uh-huh. of, because I was lying under four blankets at home and then you know shivering. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was it was really scary and. Um, the f- I thought actually at the beginning it was COVID, mm-hmm. you know, high fever, swollen glands. It's like, oh, okay, great, yeah. third time is a charm. So here we go, COVID again. And um, but then it, I, I tested um every day, literally test, yeah. and all negative. So that was like, okay, something is wrong here, you know. And a week passed, and I am calling, you know. Um, frontline services, 111, 111 is the emergency service in the UK you need to call uh, and they give you advice and if you are really sick you call 999 which is an ambulance that they send. and every time when i called them i was being told that oh, this is not emergency call us when you are worse and then the fever was going 38 38.5 39.2 and then it said advice Now if i was telling in the last conversation i was like well I, call us when you are get when you get worse, but I think the next call will be from someone who find me in the flat, you know, I, like
2: passed out, right?
4: <laughs> what is worse oh than God. 39.6 uh, degrees Celsius fever? You know, it's, uh, I was a bit gutted, and um, then the rash came in, but the rash was really really uh, different rash, and it was looking, like, I was looking like Kirby from Super Mario, the little bit <laughs> It was like yeah. half half white, half red oh. and it wasn't like raised rash. It was all over my body. Wow. So and then there was one little tiny lesion which mm. all my photos out there in public right now shows this great uh huge scar on my face. Mm-hmm. At one point I was thinking it has its own living area on my on my face. And,
2: oh gosh. <laughs> you know
4: it, because it started really <laughs> tiny like a tip of a pen and then it got that that big. Um yeah. and I didn't have anything mm. else. So As someone who had occasionally some skin problems like impotigo or something I thought okay this this only one lesion on my face and small probably it's impotigo so put on some cream on it Um, and then rash doesn't go away, fever doesn't go away no one helps me Um, and then my GP called me, general practitioner called me um, asked me questions about I'm living with HIV since 2016 so -hmm. I was diagnosed with HIV Um, I didn't have any symptoms about HIV so um, I found out through my partner uh, unfortunately that you know um, I may have HIV so I I don't have any HIV related issues health problems or interactions or nothing so my GP told me that "Mm, you know high fever and swollen glands so maybe your HIV treatment stopped working Uh, wow. As someone is, oh I gosh. called myself an a- HIV advocate, and I was suddenly like, "What? You know, well, you know, how 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 this could happen? Everything was fine. My tests and everything is fine. And obviously, I called my sexual health clinic, mm-hmm. and they said we want to test you for monkeypox because you said you have one lesion."
0: And had you heard about monkeypox? Not in the, in the news, news, but you know,
4: I am um, working in sexual health, obviously. So, but, but still, as someone working in sexual health, I mm. didn't have the details of the monkeypox. I wasn't even think that um, World Health Organization shared a, um, news about me today, which I said that you don't think it could fi- get to you until you have it. Mm-hmm. So I think at, it is very early stages, and yeah. I was mm-hmm. thinking, or maybe not thinking you know, um, about monkeypox at all. So, um, uh, and then they said that it might be monkeypox. So let's take you in. You know, they gave me an immediate appointment. And it's just, I was really sick at the hospital and I was taking ibuprofen and paracetamol every couple of hours. They say, take it out only four times a day. I was just taking every couple of hours. I just wanted to add
2: quickly for our listeners that the fever uh, was over 103 for the Fahrenheit people. It's quite, quite high. I just wanted to make sure everybody understood that. Yes. Yeah.
4: Well, at the hospital, my doctor looked at me and um, I have to say, by the way, in the UK, I'm talking about the amount of pressure on the sexual health clinics, they actually deep clean room every single time, and the doctors are getting Mm. into gowns and the masks every single time. It took maybe two hours to get me through isolated Mm. routes to the clinic and check. It was really, the pressure is really on, you know. And this was a month ago when the cases wasn't even, you know, that high. And then my doctor told me that, okay, we saw many monkeypox cases. So your rash is not monkeypox rash. This is a high fever rash. Mm. And so you don't have any lesions rather than your nose. So we, well, we will test you for monkeypox, but we really hmm. think that you may have another infection, mm-hmm. another unknown, another uh, you know a journey to the A&E. And A&E doctor looked at me, said that, "Oh, this is tonsillitis. Here is your penicillin. Go home, and uh, we'll help you with everything." Yeah. I don't blame them, because I really can't say any of the authorities around the world. Talking about USA and UK as you know leading in the monkeypox right now, gave a very mm. clear messaging to the communities or the mm. doctors or any information. So it's an unknown, you know, HIV treatment stopped working or tonsillitis or flu or COVID. You know, all sorts are very similar. Mm. So I don't blame them, but still, uh, you know, being into the unknown was horrible. And then obviously, um, I get, got home. They sent me home. Penicillin didn't work and mm-hmm. my throat was shut completely because of the lesions in three weeks' time. And I was still at home. And luckily, wow. I was lucky in my sexual health clinic, Humerton Hospital Sexual Health Clinic, the nurse was calling me to check on me every day. And on the third day, I was wow. really mm-hmm. agitated and I was crying. I told her that I haven't eaten like for two days. I haven't even had any water. Mm-hmm. I can't even really swallow my own spit. Like old-time cowboys, I had a spit uh, bucket next to me. She commenced emergency services, and my journey to the healing started after that. You know, um, and I was taken to the hospital. I went to the hospital, mm. uh, A&E, and then a ten, eleven days of isolation started at the hospital. Wow, it's terrifying. But I don't want to terrify <laughs> people with that story because i'm telling everyone that my journey got better when i hospitalized and monkeypox unfortunately again in the uk there is there are really limited laboratories testing for monkeypox so you have to wait for maybe a week in my case it was 5 days but it was like a month ago um so without the hmm. diagnosis no one can do anything and the hospital that took me in was giving me all the you know uh, opioids to pe- ease my pain because I was crying, you know, I was shivering, you know, all the antibiotics for my huge scar on my face, but they it, uh, they didn't know what it was. And uh, on the third day when I was at the hospital, the test result came back positive for um, monkeypox and then everything got better. Then Royal Free London, they are really experts in the infectious conditions and they wanted to take me over immediately because they had a couple of other monkeypox cases as well. And with COVID, they were really, really successful as well. So, and then they I, they carried me over there, and they put me on um, a, a tipox, uh, tecovirimat treatment. That is an antiviral treatment, mm-hmm. but they told me that this never trialed on human. So we don't know how efficient it is. We don't know how you know how it's gonna turn out. But I was so much in pain, mm-hmm. and I wasn't able to eat or drink. I came to a stage that, um, apologies from some of your listeners, but, um, oh my God, like Trump said, do you need to inject some bleach in me to heal me? Please <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Please, let's try it. Yeah. You know, I was at that stage of pain. Yeah, yeah. Do whatever you need to yeah. do. I, You have my full consent to do everything <laughs> on me. And, you know... <laughs> Um, But luckily, it it worked. And three days later, I was able to swallow my first sips of water. And then a couple of days later, I had my first cereal in the breakfast and then things got better.
0: (laughs) Your experience kind of just goes to show that the pain of the illness is one thing and the, you know, physical effects, but the, like, Doctors not knowing how to treat you, people maybe, um, I've read stories of people not being believed or being brushed off or being stigmatized um, once somebody realizes that they might have monkeypox and nurses sort of being grossed out. It just really, to me, feels like what it must have been for people in those first days of the HIV AIDS epidemic, where it's really information circulating within communities that are like forcing people to advocate for themselves rather than, you know, doctors in the medical establishment knowing what's going on and sort of providing proactive That is one of the
4: reasons, actually, Christina, that I wanted to put myself out there because I saw the similarities in other early days of HIV like uh, journey here. So Mm -hmm. let's not go there. And let's do something about it right now, because otherwise it's going to get out of hand. But now with HIV, for example, some times ago, one of the nurses at somewhere uh, didn't want to touch me, and then were backed off. But because I know the facts, I was able to fight for mm. it. But mm-hmm. now it is a huge unknown, and I am sitting there, don't have a diagnosis, and I don't know the facts about this new condition. And then when they don't want to do something or wait, when they want to do something, I don't know what I need to do. Okay, Mm -hmm. you don't want to treat me. I want to fight you. But with what? You know, um, what should I say in return? I don't know what is Mm -hmm. happening. I don't know what condition. I don't know if it's fatal or not. There is not enough data scientifically. This was the most mentally draining part for me, I think.
1: I mean, it must have felt so strange because, you know, we, we all benefit from all of those decades of, of advocacy around HIV and AIDS and all of the knowledge that has was really hard fought, but like you said, allows people to come into, you know, to come into that, that medical world with a certain, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. kind of armed with information, right? Um, at least at some point, you know, one of the things that I've seen people sort of talking about, one of the real problems with labeling this even informally um, as having to do with gay people, right? Is that if anything, it feels like it's sort of punishing gay people for, you know, our propensity for keeping track of our health, right? For being very, for being really knowledgeable, right? For getting regular tests, for sort of being really careful and thoughtful in community Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. health risk in general you know it's just such a perverse twist right on so many decades of that kind of work i think one of the things that's so striking listening to your story is that like you know a little bit differently than from covid early on in the pandemic is we actually have you know pretty decent resources to deal with this but like you were saying in that kind of classic <laughs> bullshit public health way right different different authorities and states have said ah oh, okay well this is mostly happening the lgbt community or rather is mostly being reported so great they already have to take care of themselves so we'll just leave it there when rather what we could be doing right now is advocating and demanding right that no we need to put a public health strategy in place now because people can't necessarily easily get tested like you said it took so many days or you know doctors and clinicians need Resources on track. We already have a vaccine, but there isn't that much. You know, we have, but we have those tools, but there is this, you know, public health. Right, this is the classic scenario we're all living through now, where yeah. we've been asked to manage it at the individual level. When in reality, I mean, viruses are the perfect example. Viruses don't believe in individuality. Mm-hmm. Viruses are indiscriminate and social. And so it is appropriate to address this at the state, you know, at the, at the, at the level of public health and that's means authorities. And so it seems like also one thing we could be doing, right. No matter who we are individually is be thinking about like, okay, well, if I am worried mm-hmm. for myself, but mm-hmm. also if I care about, you know, my community, I need to be calling up my, you know, my representatives now I need to be, you know, it's like, some of us, right, I feel like probably a lot of people listen to this podcast, we've already spent time Googling, like, can I even get a monkeypox vaccine, right? Like, can I get the vaccine? Can I, you know, what do I do? But but for everyone, right? It's like, well, in the meantime, if we're all kind of stepping up in that way, maybe we could preempt a lot more of this yeah. ridiculousness from playing out a little
4: further. Monkeypox, I know um, the first cases in America, I think around 10 years ago, if I read it correctly in the so it's not a new condition um Mm. and i know that in the in the uk between 2018 and 2022 there were only seven cases but those cases were from people who visited africa so the really interesting fact here is here it comes for the discriminatory racist people since the first case happened in 2022 in the uk there is no africa connection Mm. So they don't know how in the beginning of the May it appeared. Mm-hmm. So government was aware mm-hmm. of it. And since at the beginning of May the cases are increasing, like Jules, you said, there is a vaccine available. Why we did an action when there were only 100 cases? Right, right. Why the vaccine yeah. is still not rolled out? And three, why there are mm-hmm. com- confusing mixed messages from each healthcare provider some says you have to visit africa in couple of weeks to get vaccine some says you you know you have to be gay to get vaccine some says you have some other health conditions to have vaccine like who is going to get the vaccine this treatment is available let's get the placebo trials happen as soon as possible so we know how effective it is yeah. you know but at least we don't deal with unknowns yeah. But when I got the monkeypox, my biggest mental health issue mm-hmm. was unknowns. Not an ADHD. I have to know what my instructions yeah. are. I have to know where I'm gonna go or where I need to go. But nothing. It can be scary, but let's not let people to fall into the anxiety and panic. Because it is not fatal. There are no death tolls on by monkeypox so far in twenty twenty-two cases. There is a vaccine. There is a treatment. Just we need to be quick and protect our communities.
2: Harun, thank you so much for joining us. That was like incredibly, like incredibly informative and just powerful. We we really appreciate it. Oh,
3: thank you for joining.
1: The loss of abortion rights and the rapidly shrinking access to reproductive and other adjacent forms of care in the United States are really testing our collective imagination for solidarity and autonomy outside of dependence on the blessing of the state or law. And despite the anxious attempts of some ideologues, looking at you, New York Times columnist, Pamela Paul, who in a recent column tried to pretend that the right and the left are the same because something, something trans-inclusive language is as bad as the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Anyways, the truth is that trans struggles and struggles for reproductive justice, especially abortion, are just so tightly intertwined. And trans people actually have long-term experience with being unable to access life-saving health care through the so-called sanctioned channels, and also at being policed for doing that. And these state-level laws that we're seeing criminalizing abortion in the U.S. now have come into force in a totally symbiotic relationship to their anti-trans predecessors. All things we've chatted about on the pod before. But trans people also have this kind of ingenious medical practice all on our own. And we usually call that DIY, as in transitioning do-it-yourself. And it's just our luck that Io Dodds, who's a journalist, published an incredible piece recently in The Independent uh, at the sort of start of July, which was entitled, Never Ask Permission, How Two Trans Women Ran a Legendary Underground Surgical Clinic in a Rural Tractor Barn. (laughs) Okay, so now that you're officially obsessed just from hearing that title, I think you understand why we had to have Io on the show uh, to talk to us about this kind of mind-blowing story of these trans women who set up their own DIY surgery clinic, and this was in the Pacific Northwest around 2004, but also, you know, to think about the kind of lessons we can draw from this right now. So Io, first of all, welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're all really big fans um, of, of this piece. And, uh, you know, we'll have a link to it in the show notes so that everyone can go and, you know, read the, the original here. But I was hoping you could kind of set the scene for us all. And um, because in this piece, you introduce us to, you know, now one of my absolute favorite people, um, <laughs> Eilish Nielanigan, uh, And you tell us a little bit about, you know, how, Uh, Eilish founded this DIY clinic in the mid aughts. And could you tell us a little bit about sort of why she decided to set up her own underground clinic out in Washington state and sort
5: of what she was hoping to do with it at the time? Sure, yeah. Um, So there's a funny answer to this because part of the answer or or like, maybe even the initial answer is like, because she needed money and it was something something that they could do, right? She was living out in the middle of nowhere. Um, She'd kind of burned out on the stuff that she was doing, which was like uh, software development. Uh, and anarchist organizing. And, uh, she was sort of part of, uh, you know, broadly construed the anarchist movement. Uh, and as was her, uh, friend Willow, they ended up living uh, Willow is a doctor. And, um, uh, I wasn't able to interview her. Unfortunately, she doesn't like to speak to the press. Uh, and she is also currently, uh, Eilish says an abortion doctor. Mm. Uh, so she is subject to sort mm. of uh, threats to her safety right now. Uh, so she wasn't someone I could talk to. So I, this is, primarily through uh, Eilish. According to Eilish, uh, Willow uh, was a rare thing at the time, rare now, even rarer then. Uh, A doctor who is also, as a doctor, out as a transgender woman. Uh, And she moved to uh, the Pacific Northwest for a while to do a residency. Uh, And at the same time, Eilish and her girlfriend had moved to this sort of little house, uh, basically in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Northwest. And so the idea for it sort of Mm -hmm. came from Willow, who had this idea of like, hey, what if we... What if we do this thing? She had been basically buying uh, medical equipment that would be necessary Hmm. on eBay and kind of fixing it up. She liked to sort of fix things up. Uh, And there was also this thing of, you know, looking more broadly. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Eilish's description of this was like, I don't want anybody to think I was anything other than (laughs) a lowbagger who just needed money. Right. Like we were just dumb plant kids. Um, which I think mm-hmm. is possibly downplaying a bit because when they, whether, whatever the initial spark for the decision, once they decided to go through with this, uh, they took a lot of inspiration from both the radical politics that they'd been running with uh, and from the radical politics mm. of the abortion movement. So they were explicitly inspired by the Jane Collective, which in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, was this abortion group uh, in Chicago. Uh, and at the time, abortion was illegal in Illinois. And they basically found that they were had this kind of underground thing where they'd connect people with abortion doctors uh, but it turned out a lot of the abortion doctors they used uh not only were men but in fact had lied about their medical credentials and so they went hang on if these men can just lie about their medical credentials and lie about having the qualifications to do this and still perform abortions that actually are quite unsafe but we're still using Mm -hmm. them we don't have any choice why can't we just do the same thing if we're using sort of illegal fake doctors anyway. (laughs) Why don't at least we be the illegal fake doctors and we give a shit about the safety of the women that we're dealing with here. And so there was a kind of similar thing going on here, except in fact, Willow was literally a doctor. And that's one of the interesting things about this clinic that it's sort of, uh, at least according to Eilish, uh, it is one that was fully kind of legal and compliant with Washington state law. It was underground. It was secret because they were concerned about sort of basically being unfairly uh, discriminated against by the authorities and by investigators, but they say it was, uh, you know, did meet all the requirements of a legal clinic. Uh, and the context for trans healthcare at this time was that, you know, this was before uh, Obamacare, mm-hmm. which kind of led to a lot of American health insurers being obliged to fund uh, trans healthcare procedures. And at the time, the way Alish described it, it was a very sort of bleak landscape for securing trans medical care, for securing hormones, for securing surgery not only did insurers not cover it, uh, and not only are trans people disproportionately likely to not have health insurance or not have money out of pocket to pay for this stuff, but many clinics uh, or hospitals for such like just didn't want to do it. And if they did want to do it, uh, they often, you know, behaved in quite discriminatory ways towards right. trans people. Uh, that might just be as simple as disrespect. And you go in and you're constantly being dead named and everybody sort of, you know, doesn't understand what the hell you're there for. Uh, or it can be, you know, there was some not very long before this clinic was set up in 2004 there were some very nasty examples of trans people being like Mm -hmm. left to die uh, by medical practitioners who were like wow what the fuck are you right and didn't want to help them so uh, you know so this led to a similar situation the Jane Collective were in where you know the way Eilish described it was like but nowadays in a lot of America uh, we have what's called the informed Mm -hmm. consent model of trans healthcare um, which is what living in California I've been able to take advantage of Eilish said we didn't have the informed consent model. We had the sketchy doctor model. We had the going going to people with uh, sobriquets like Butcher yeah. Brown model. Uh, we had the going to doctors who, you know, Butcher Brown later got sent to prison um, for operating on someone who got then got gangrene after the, uh, after the operation. So it was this sort of really grim situation uh, for being able to find a doctor who'd help you uh, or if you did, that doctor actually being able to like help you in a kind of responsible and clean and safe way. And they were like, shit, we could just do this. This is a procedure that's been performed for thousands of years, uh, We can learn how to do this, and we can do it well, and we can probably do it better than a lot of the providers who currently do. Yeah, I, I love how, you know, it's so interesting, right? I think sometimes, and
1: especially because of how, you know, a loss of access to abortion has been framed, people might be primed to think that DIY medicine in general or surgery is always kind of tragic that it's like a last ditch resort or that it's really comes down to what is legal and illegal but what's so interesting here right is that like none of those Kind of easy divides really seem to work, right? Like the, this clinic is actually nominally legal, right? Um, but also, you know, the state of trans healthcare isn't just dependent on legality, right? Um, and this idea of like who is really good at doing surgery doesn't necessarily even line up. Although, you know, very helpful that Willow <laughs> was was herself a doctor. Sure. Um, and and you know maybe you know just just for our, for our, for for listeners who may not know you know, an orchiectomy is a pretty, at least I would say a pretty chill surgery. Of course, I don't remember mine because I was put under um, as one Mm -hmm. is, Um, but you know, it's like, it doesn't take very long. It has been performed as you were saying for thousands of years um, because of course, nature very wisely was like, you know, some people don't want these, uh, you know, attached to their body. So we're going to put them (laughs) on the outside. And that means it's going to be real easy to just pluck them out. And then, you know, Whoop to do! You know, it.
0: Everybody really right, also had the foresight. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> she was very nice yeah. in this one case to trans women, <laughs> uh, but you know, but 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 could you, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about why, like, what what made the sort of orchiectomy to be so um, attractive potentially to you know prospective clients of of the barn, um, and you know, obviously, I just implied one of the reasons is it's relatively simple, quick, and safe. But but what made it kind of such an attractive surgery um, to maybe, you know, find in this incredible circumstance?
5: It was an interesting balance trying to write this piece because I was simultaneously trying to write something that would, for trans people reading, would feel like it was for right, us. Right. Uh, and that felt like it kind of took the sort of basic realities of trans life mm. as axiomatic, right? Um, but at the same time, I wanted it to be intelligible to cis people. And part of that men explaining why this was an important procedure for people, right? Why any of this was important, because there is obviously a huge amount of kind of cultural, uh, I don't know, uh, weight and uh, obsession, perhaps, and weirdness, I suppose, freighted on the testicles as an organ, right? They're an organ that is very uh, kind of semantically and culturally uh, and kind of sexually and all of these different things inside, like overloaded, right? Um, they are what, Mm -hmm. what they do and what they are like is often fairly obscured by like Mm -hmm. all of our feelings about them, removing the testicles, which like in the medical context, we call it orchiectomy, but it is the word that has been used for thousands of years. And it's a more kind of controversial and racy word is castration, right? And castration is obviously a word that's also used figuratively for like losing your mojo, losing your ability to act, losing your potency in all kinds of spheres of life removing the testicles is in people's heads as like one of the most yeah. out there possible procedures to have something that nobody in their mm. right minds would want uh, unless they were bonkers in some way or unless they were a ninth century eunuch or something whereas the truth is that this is a medical procedure that people want for a lot of different reasons for trans women it's a fairly normal medical procedure to get and it has a sort of more like psychological bodily kind of dysphoria linked uh utility and it has a very pragmatic utility the first one is that trans women tends to want their bodies, not always, but often want their bodies to be more uh, kind of in line with what cis women's bodies are like, to put it crudely, uh, and often have dysphoria about the genitalia. And Orectomy can uh, sort of, it's a much, much simpler procedure than okay. vaginoplasty, which is the construction of a new vagina out of the materials that are already there. Uh, and orchiectomy is way, way simpler than that. Um, and as a consequence, they're cheaper. And so often it is something that people get before, or if they cannot get, uh, vaginoplasty. Uh, and it's something that can, you know, relieve dysphoria. If they are not there anymore. You're like, ah, oh, that feels nice. That feels better. I feel more able to, uh, And relieving dysphoria doesn't just mean, Oh, I feel better in general. It can mean, for instance, you're able to mm-hmm. engage in sexual activity in a way that is less self-conscious a way that is less like blocked off from that. If you have really strong genital dysphoria, that can be a really difficult thing to navigate past when you're trying to have sex with anyone. Uh, and then the pragmatic reason is simply, Uh, Trans women usually, not always, go on uh, hormone replacement therapy. And when you take hormones for trans women, usually that means you go on a testosterone blocker and you go on estrogen. And testosterone blockers Mm -hmm. are kind of shitty as drugs. They're unpleasant to take. All of the different testosterone blockers, there are all kinds of different side effects from the different ones you can get. One of the most commonly used in the US is spironolactone. And that has all kinds of terrible side effects, which include you have to piss like twice as much, which is a, a tremendous inconvenience and I hate it. And so. If you get an orchiectomy, that removes one whole side of that hormone therapy regime. You only need to then have the estrogen, as I understand it, and not having to take T-blockers as part of your pill regimen is very, very helpful. So to answer the question about why people put it here in particular, a lot of the the answers, there were not Mm -hmm. many patients, to be clear. In the end, there were only about 14 to 16 patients. They could all be edge cases. But for one thing, it was cheap. At the time, uh, Eilish told me an orchiectomy would set you back maybe two thousand to five thousand uh, dollars the most that this clinic ever charged was five hundred dollars right uh, and they also charged on a sliding scale so a lot of people ended, pay- ended up paying less than five hundred dollars uh, and sometimes if you paid five hundred dollars they would like package in various things like doing some electrolysis uh, hair removal on you um and that sort of packaged in you get to sleep on island's couch <laughs> while you wait in the area in case there's any complications uh, or they take <laughs> you up the roads uh, to a forest and they set out some camps <laughs> and they teach you how to shoot an assault rifle. Just in case, as a trans person, you ever need that for some Normal reason. Normal trans lady yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, totally. But yeah, the other thing was that they would treat people who would even more struggle to get medical care from the medical establishment. So for instance, uh, they would treat mm-hmm. people who are HIV positive, uh, which according to Eilish, a lot of sort of mainstream doctors yeah. would not treat at the time. Uh, and also just a general like mistrust this was a clinic that the goal, the intention in part was, let's make this feel like a safe and trusted environment for trans people who have been given reasons um, and given plenty of reasons throughout their life to not trust cis doctors.
2: I, one, of the, one of the things I loved about this piece was that in addition to digging into all the issues that we've been talking about, it's also just a beautiful yes. piece of storytelling and sort of scene yes. description and all of Thank those you. other writerly aspects. I was hoping that you could uh, relate, if it doesn't spoil the piece too much, maybe relate to our readers, this really harrowing, but also kind of funny story uh, that you tell about when the health department had been sicked on on the clinic, and, the, and there's this ingenious way that Eilish um, manages to sort of handle that situation using a bit of sort of trans community wisdom. I wonder if you could just uh, narrate that a little bit for our listeners.
5: Oh yeah, totally. So this is a uh, this is a story that um Eilish has told before, told before I wrote this article because Eilish told this story first on Twitter um mm. in mm-hmm. 2020 uh, and did an interview with um the podcast Totally Trans. Yes. Shout out to them because I listened to that before writing my piece. So this is a yeah, this is a fascinating story of when the patient gave a very um as Eilish described it, technically true uh, but really materially uh misleading account of where she got her orchid mm. to her GP, which <laughs> was like Oh yeah, it was this two trans women <laughs> up a logging road in a bath, right?
3: Which is yeah, yeah,
5: literally yeah. true. Uh, but does not uh, mention that like one of them is <laughs> a medical doctor and this is a medical clinic and all of this stuff. So the GP calls the authorities and uh the Board of Health comes knocking. I should sort of preface this by saying, you know, uh because uh we you know weren't able to talk to Willow and Willow is a pseudonym, uh Eilish didn't want to share Willow's uh full name. So I wasn't able to mm. chase this up and verify this and like try and get the paperwork from the Washington Board of Health. You know, that wasn't something that we were able to get from the authorities, if there even is still a record of this. And the way Eilish describes it is that the government came knocking, the Board of Health came knocking. She initially thought it was maybe the FBI. She ran in these anarchist circles. And they come in and they've kind of heard about this. And they're like, you know, asking all these questions, like, we want to see the autoclave logs. Like, where's your business license? Where's your, uh, you know, how do you store drugs? Where's your drug storage paperwork? Uh, A lot of these were all things that Eilish was prepared for. Uh, And some of these things were things that, like, uh, they actually have sort of dodged the requirement for, right? So they didn't need to have a business license, as because they didn't make enough money. Uh, They did not store drugs on the premises. They did not have any drugs, paperwork, or procedures. They would give you a prescription. You'd go and fill it somewhere else, and then you'd come and take it in front of them. Uh, So she's like, we don't have those. We don't need those. Here's the autoclave box. Here's this. And it's all feeling very, like, in control and very kind of like, oh, yeah, she's ready for this. And then she spots... Uh, a big problem just behind the cautery, which was a small cup with the testicles of the previous patient, last night's patient, <laughs> in it. Uh, and kind of flashback, how these got here is that last night the patient was a real lightweight uh, and sort of took the Vicodin uh, and then, you know, had the surgery and was like immediately, like super zonked out. Uh, so Eilish and Willow had to kind of like get their arms around her and get, get her arms over their shoulders and like help her into the house and just kind of look after her, right? And so Eilish gave the clinic a quick quick wipe down and was like, I'm going to do the proper cleaning, yeah. you know, the sort of thorough cleaning of this place uh, in the morning, uh, except in the morning uh, before, like basically as Eilish was drinking her first <laughs> cup of coffee, the proverbial cup of coffee uh, <laughs> that like you shouldn't talk to me until I have, right? Um, <laughs> that's when the healthcare her <laughs> cut, shut up. Uh, so she's like, shit they're like loose balls in, i feel like this, this is clinic, a scene is from like, <laughs> the
0: trans version of the hangover or something
5: right absolutely uh so the the tip that she says the trick that she says that she's learned is that the cisgender bureaucrats are alarmed uh really by uh the concept of transness uh and do not like to hear the words transgender transsexual mm. especially uh, especially uh all these sort of a bunch of times in short succession, put in their face. So she starts basically being like, Well, hey, listen, if you guys gave a fuck about transgender healthcare, then we wouldn't have to be doing this. But we we were just a pair of transsexuals. We've been trying to get Medicaid funding for this transsexual up in Washington and you but you don't give a fuck about trans health. There's like constantly saying the word trans in this sort of diatribe. And they're like, Well, that's not our department. Okay, well, we'll see what we can do. And you know, kind of uh, essentially are distracted and leave and in the end, Eilish says they gave the clinic a broadly uh, clean bill of health, except for one thing, which is they didn't like that there was mud on the floor. Uh, and according to Eilish, this is mud that the that the bureaucrats themselves tracked in. They came in and she was like, hey, can you wipe, hey, wipe your feet, please? And they didn't. And then they were like walking around the clinic with their muddy boots. And then they go, well, oh, there was mud on the floor of this clinic. And uh, Eilish was like, oh, she's still pissed about this. And she's like, Willow still has to explain this. Willow still has to be like, oh, I ran this clinic, and these bureaucrats fucking didn't wipe their shoes, and then they wrapped us for the mud. Uh, so they leave, and she's able to sort of retrieve the balls and go into, uh, go into the the house where uh, Dana is sleeping off. Sorry, Dana is the sort of pseudonym uh, that we used in the piece for the previous patient. Um, go into the uh, go into the house and be like,
0: hey, you
1: forgot these. Unbelievable. You can't make this stuff. I know somebody should really so cool.
0: option your piece yeah, for yeah. like a uh mini-series or something. <laughs> or or like a several season uh dramedy would watch.
1: Clearly, we could all talk about punk orchiectomies in a barn all day. Uh, but unfortunately, that's about all the time we have. I just cannot recommend enough to listeners. Please go and read Io's articles. Brian alluded to. It's it's like it's such an incredible read. So you're you, you're primed here, um, and and that article in the Independent we're going to link to, you know, in our show notes for you. I O thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us about this, and thank you for writing what is hands down my absolute favorite piece of Pride Month journalism, if not my favorite piece of trans journalism I have read in many, many, many years.
5: Oh, thank you so much, and thank you all for having me on. It's been a wonderful discussion.
0: Okay, that's almost all the time we have for this month. But before we sign off, we have to update our gay agenda. Jules, what are you going to bring us this month?
1: Okay, so I want to talk to you about season two of my absolute favorite show on television, P Valley. This is a show on the Stars Network, which who even knows what that is. Um, But it's this incredible show um, about a strip club on the Mississippi Delta A kind of drama and story about about black life uh you know in the mississippi valley you know on on, on the delta and you know we get treated to this incredible strip club that is headed up by a femme queen name uh, Uncle Clifford and a, a cast of just incredible, really dynamic Black women and men who are sort of trying to, to find their way um, in, in the world and facing down issues of gentrification and capital investment, legacies of anti-Blackness, homophobia, Ooh. transphobia. I mean, what have you? Wow. It really is I don't know. I, I keep, you know, telling myself I need to spend some time doing research, like who came up with this show? Like what well, I just want to know so much more about it. But, but suffice it to say, it is an absolute treat. It is such a joy to watch. It's so funny. It's so sexy. And it is so unapologetically queer and trans femme, not just in a in an African-American register, but really in much more of a Mississippi Delta, you know, deep south. Um Caribbean kind of facing uh, idiom. And this, you know, season two is in progress right now. If you already watch the show, which I'm sure many of our listeners do, you know, the the Twitter conversation around is one of the, you know, most enjoyable things that we have coming each week on that cursed app. (laughs) And uh, I just think it's really kind of a stunning tribute to, to the kind of storytelling that, that can travel under black queer and black trans, uh, Idioms in this in this particular moment, and I I just I just really you know at some point I'll have to talk about Uncle Clifford as a character who I just think she is just one of the most amazing people I've ever met on television in my whole damn life. So go watch it. My state of COVID life is that I don't currently have the pleasure of going to strip clubs, and I'm not gonna lie, like really miss that. It's been quite a few years, and so in the meantime, I just get to go to um, the strip club on this show in my mind. Christina, what what have you got for our gay agenda?
0: I am recently recovered from COVID and TBH. I had it pretty bad and was laid up for like a week and a half. And so watched a lot of TV to try to distract myself. And one of the things that I watched all of the episodes of was the other two on HBO. Have you guys heard of this show? So I haven't even heard of it until my friend who had COVID the same time as me was like, if you need something to like take your mind off of any anxiety, which is exactly what I needed, watch this show. So it's a comedy about two siblings in their, I think like late 20s, early 30s, a gay guy, Carrie, and a straight woman, Brooke, who are both sort of Aimlessly, or, or or with aim but underachievingly, um, trying to find their paths in life. Uh, their fourteen-year-old brother becomes this superstar singing sensation um, with a YouTube video, and they kind of try to draft off his fame. So it's like a very absurdist comedy in the vein of like Search Party or um, Broad City, I would say. And I found the gay storylines, especially in season two, to be unparalleled in um, modern television. So there's an insy gay who pops up in a couple episodes and just <laughs> like pitch perfectly skewers that whole ecosystem of characters. Um, there's one episode where their mom's talk show is having a sweepstakes where gays who come out to their homophobic dads can win twenty five thousand um, dollars, and so like a like young gay guy and his dad come on the show, claim the $25,000. Then it turns out they're like just lovers who like games the system. And they're like, uh, all their friends. They're like, yeah, that's just what we do. We pretend to be like a boy and his dad. It was dumb. It was gay. And if you have COVID or not, it's just, I found it a really great way to take my mind off of literally everything. Brian, what are you bringing to the table?
2: Um, So I have something a little more mellow, but I think equally um, interesting. So uh, Jessica Winter, who is a former Slate editor um, and just all-around great person, she had a piece called What Should a Queer Children's Book Do? Um, And it's a really, really beautiful essay Mm -hmm. that does like a lot of work and sort of, I don't know how many words it is, but maybe like a 2,000 word, three thousand word kind of uh, essay it's a l- really fascinating capsule history of queer children's books. And it starts with like seventies zines almost and goes all the way up until Antanga makes three, which you, which you m- mentioned, Christina um, earlier in the show oh. and uh, Julian is a mermaid, which is another recent book. It also has this really insightful taxonomy and sort of how and why the mission of these books has changed over time. So tracing that from like really kind of heavy didacticism to like, Overt representation to like more subtle inclusion and changing the sort of issue of the book to be more like a kid-focused thing. That's like my uncle's new partner might replace me like in his life rather than like there's gay people mm-hmm. and are you know how do they how do they exist? Um, and then it also does this like psychoanalytical work, looking at how like adults project onto these books in different ways, both liberal and conservative people. And then, of course, it addresses the current book banning moment that we're in and kind of thinks about how, uh, how and which kinds of these books might slip past the censors um, and why. And then Jessica also very generously includes some vignettes about how she and her own kids have interacted with these books in their, in their home life. And it's just gorgeous. It's really She's a wonderful writer, and it's, just a, it's a really excellent synthesis of a lot of uh, issues sort of uh, circulating around these books right now. And I learned a lot from it, and I think people would really enjoy it. It is called, "Well, What Should a Queer Children's Book Do? And it's in The New Yorker. Okay, that is the end of the show for this month. Um, As always, we would love to have your feedback, uh, your topic ideas, your voice memos for thoughts and queries, all of those wonderful things at Podcast at slate.com. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward june thomas is our producer and a one-stop diy queer podcast surgeon that thanks to our sponsors she currently does not have to operate out of a barn we're very grateful very grateful for that uh thank you sponsors (laughs) if you like outward please subscribe in your podcast app outward will be back in your feeds on august 17th until then bye christina
0: bye brian
2: thea jules
0: bye you too
3: stay gay everybody